intervention. Um, I would like to introduce the speakers for this afternoon. Uh, this is uh, Mr. Anders Yeritsov. He's a Danish columnist and an activist on human rights and Middle East, and he is editor on a uh, Danish newspaper, uh, Politiken, and he's also chief, chief of editor of Aktualiteit, if I pronounce it right. Um, he has an impressive career in, in uh, writing and uh, editing. Um, next to him, um, proud as a Bosnian fellow to introduce uh, Professor Lamia Tanovic. She's the professor of at uh, atomic and nuclear physics, which is very refreshing in a room full of politicians and uh, lawyers and economists. And she has been uh, involved in education uh, in over 20 years. She's been board of many educational institutions, and she is the chair of Humanity in Action in Bosnia and Herzegovina. Uh, next to her is uh, Dr. Hans Binnendijk, who is, as a Dutch fellow as well, proudly presenting, but he has been living his most life in the United States and has a very impressive rec career record working in the White House, being a vice chair of the uh, National Security Policy of the National Defense University, and he is now a fellow at SAIS as well. Um, we have then next to him Ambassador um, Janus Reiter, if I pronounce it right. Ambassador uh, Janus Reiter has a long-standing embassy career serving the United States and in Germany and has been uh, played an active role in uh, fostering German and Polish relations. And I will give the floor to the moderator, Mr. Anders. Thank you. And thank you all for coming. Uh, look, we will not be speaking about theory of humanitarian interventions. We will be speaking about practice, about reality. And uh, two countries, two areas will be in focus. One of them, the current issue of Syria, where 100,000 people have been killed. The other one, Bosnia and the Balkans, 20 years ago. Now, just to, to put the current situation uh, in, in focus, we are two years and, and four months into the conflict in Syria. It started with people demonstrating and calling for change. They demonstrated peacefully. They called for accountability, for change, for democracy. It only turned violent when the dictator, Bashar al-Assad, uh, decided to crush the demonstrations. Today, these two years and four months on, 100,000 people have been killed, more than 1 million people have fled, at least 8 million people, that's almost 40% uh, of the population, are in need of humanitarian aid. Now, still, there's no intervention, uh, there's no international common policy, there's no uh, decision by the international community to come to the assistance of people in Syria. Instead, chaos. Now. For that reason, I would like to remember an interview I did with Lamia Tanovic about 20 years ago. I was even younger than I am now. Lamia Tanovic was already as clever as she is now. And I was asking her what kind of, of assistance she wanted from the world. And I think I'm right in remembering that you, you had all sorts of comments, of course, but you said at least you have to allow us to fight our own struggle. We need weapons, we need to be allowed to fight. So looking back, how did you see the assistance you had from the world? And as soon as you have told me, I will t ask you, so what do you expect us to do in Syria? Uh, yes, but uh, uh, Anas, it was a different case. We were forbidden by, by a very special uh, uh, a resolution in the UN, we've been forbidden to, to get vep weapons. So we had to smuggle some in order to... Uh, and at the time, we've been fully recognized independent sovereign state, uh, recognized, we had our seat in United Nations, we've been recognized by a number of countries and so on. We've been, uh, we had a really very specific position. Generally speaking, I have to mention, so uh, I would like those in Syria to be able to defend themselves. But it seems that both sides 
uh, have some weaponry. There is no special re uh, resolution which forbids anybody there to provide. Uh, you, you see that Saddam regime is getting more and more sophisticated weaponry from, from uh, uh, Russia and so on. Uh, it is very much a different case, but for, from the point of view of civilians who are mainly victims, doesn't matter at all. They have to survive. They have to get assistance. And they look into the democratic world. That is, you, United Nations, as an as a international organization that is supposed to, to be very much democratic, Euro European Union, big powers as well, big, mainly United States, they, they expect assistance from them. And they expect uh, uh, justice. They expect uh, uh, respect uh, towards uh, uh, human rights. That's main issue. And I'm not expert, as, as Hans probably is in this area, uh, uh, but uh, I have this uh, painful personal experience uh, because some kind of intervention is still going on in my country. 18 years, guns are silent. But we still have some kind of war, maybe even more difficult than it was in the beginning. But I'm sh we will get back to the U.S. and Europe, but please allow me to ask you first. It would be natural to expect assistance coming from the nearby area. Uh, do we have reason to expect any kind of international responsibility from the Arab League or from the supporter of Syria during many years, Russia? I would like to have an answer from each of you on this question. I already said from the democratic world. And why not the Arab and world and I'm Russia? I'm not sure that they have such a long history of democracy as these others. We expect usually assistance from. Hans? I don't think we can expect uh, much support from either the Arab League or from Russia. Uh, the, this is a, essentially now a Sunni-Shia uh, conflict in Syria, and uh, therefore I don't see the Arab League uh, choosing sides there. They're, they're on both sides. Um, with regard to Russia, unfortunately they are involved. Uh, they're involved on the wrong side. Uh, so I don't think we can look to them for any help at this point. I can see a situation downstream where we might have uh, greater common interest. We can talk about that later. Uh, so I don't expect either of those to help. We can talk about what the United States is doing in just a minute. Yeah, we will. Janos, do you have a word on, on expectations when it comes to the Arab League and Russia? No, because uh, I would, I would uh, like to focus more on Russia because this is a country I know more about. So. The, uh, so Russia's understanding of, of international politics is very conservative. It's very traditional. It's like, well, Europe of the 19th century. It's a zero-sum game. And, uh, and unfortunately, on the one hand, Russia is no more a major superpower. On the other hand, it's still a country that matters. Why, is, why does it matter? It matters because those who make the decision to intervene and who take the risk um, can expect that no one will, if they fail, be a sort of winner. No one will, will um, uh, somehow um, take advantage of a possible failure of an intervention. And imagine... Uh, there is a coalition of Western countries in Syria, and that leads to a political failure. It, uh, who is then uh, taking the advantage of that? Well, Russia would be the first uh, one to come up and say, well, we were right. Uh, so you need a certain consensus, at least, even if, if a country does not, does not join the intervention, that at least there will be a fairness uh, a sense of common rules that will be that will be um, uh, uh, accepted by everybody, and unfortunately, we are very far from such uh, consensus because Russia is not willing to be part of this consensus because the Russian understanding of the world is, as I said, a zero-sum game. But this is not the only problem. Uh, even even if Russia 
were willing to join an intervention. I, mean, I have no illusions about uh, Europe. Europe is not eager to intervene for a lot of reasons. Those who have the uh, who have the self-confidence to intervene, France and, and the UK, are economically weak and politically also in decline, more or less. Those who are economically strong, uh, like Germany, are not willing, because Germany is seeing itself as a trade power, not as a political or military power. And as long as we have no consensus in Europe, again, well, little can be done. But still, looking back uh, to the beginning of this Syrian conflict, it was said that we shouldn't intervene, we shouldn't take part, because we might end up seeing Syria fall into the hands of terrorists, it would turn into uh, terror, it would cost a lot of lives, etc. But isn't that what happens today? Maybe because we didn't intervene. Yes, but uh, I think we again have to be fair, because it's easy to criticize uh, the political leaders for not acting, but it's even easier or more tempting to criticize them for a failure. Uh, um, and uh, uh, this is a, a difficult, uh, a very difficult uh, decision. But of course, uh, you, if you want to make such a decision, you need to, you need a, a strong support in your own country. Samantha Power, uh, were, I think some time ago said, rightly said that uh, every uh, intervention, every uh, intervention on, uh, how did she say? Uh, Intervention of this of this nature uh, is won or lost in the dom in domestic politics. Uh, it starts with domestic uh, politics, um, and in in Europe, uh, unfortunately, I don't see anybody who wants to take the risk of who wants to take the uh, the risk of uh, making a decision that is not understood by the wide public take us to the U.S. <laughs> who would like to see an intervention in the U.S. and who wouldn't? Uh, first, let me say that uh, with regard to the general question of intervention in these kinds of humanitarian crises, uh, the world has a very bad history. Uh, go back to just our own memory, Cambodia, uh, uh, Rwanda, Darfur. Certainly, we were very late in coming to Bosnia's aid, Kosovo. Look at the Congo today, five million people plus killed. It's a, sort of the silent uh, genocide. Uh, so we have a bad habit of coming in late uh, to these kinds of crises. Um, for a nation like the United States, we, we have intervened in uh, some cases where it is essentially a value proposition. We are doing it for humanitarian reasons. Uh, I think of Somalia as one example, and that got us into a lot of trouble. I think of Libya more recently as another example, uh, with Samantha Power uh, heavily involved in, in that. Um, was Libya a bad experience or a Libya success? is not over yet. Uh, we, we have a very mixed, in, in American, we, Americans have intervened for uh, humanitarian reasons, uh, but we also tend to intervene a lot for regime change, uh, and there are think of Iraq, Afghanistan, what is happening incidentally is that those lines get blurred between regime change and responsibility to protect. Uh, but the point that I wanted to make is that uh, a nation like the United States, and this gets back to your point about domestic politics, uh, we will tend to intervene when it's both in our, both it's a value proposition, there's a humanitarian issue, but it's also in our interest. And let me turn with this to Bosnia. Uh, I watched this very closely uh, from the State Department from Washington. And it was very clear to me, uh, I mean, I was at the policy planning staff in the State Department, and I would watch all the dissent go through. There, was a, there were a lot of people in the State Department who thought we ought to be intervening two or three years earlier. Why didn't we do that? Because we didn't think it was in our interest to do it. And what what turned the corner, what turned the corner was a realization that it wasn't just Bosnia, it was, it was NATO. If NATO didn't act, NATO would fail and NATO would be undercut. And I think that realization um, led us to 
was a major element leading us to intervene in Bosnia. Now, today in Syria, uh, so far, it's mostly a value proposition. You mentioned 100,000 dead and, and those tragedies that we see on TV every day. What I see developing there in the last couple of months is a greater understanding that it's also in, there's an interest proposition. Um, that it's not just about those who are being killed, but it's about a regional Sunni-Shia split that will affect Iraq, that will affect uh, in different ways uh, the neighbors, where Jordan, Turkey, uh, Lebanon. So, um, and if we end up with Assad staying after even more killing, it will appear to the world to be a victory for whom? For Iran, for Hezbollah, for Russia. So this is now becoming more of an interest proposition and not just a value proposition. And when those two things combine, then it's easier to deal with this in terms of your public affairs. Just to make one last point. We happen to be at a point in our history now in the United States where the mantra is no more Afghanistans. We did Iraq, we did Afghanistan, they were a decade each, trillion dollars each, roughly, a lot of casualties. There's not much stomach for doing this in the United States. So what we're doing as we see these interests building up is we're taking half measures. We're taking half measures. Then the question is, will those half measures be adequate to get to the goal that we want to get to? So let me, uh, we are told that the U.S. intervened when it became clear late, it was in the interest of the U.S. Too late, really, for 100,000 people that were killed in this tiny, small country, and Syria has already 100,000. It is, uh, I, I have to, to bring attention to the point of view of uh, people there. Politics, okay, politics are doing what they are doing, but they have to look on the people, on the victims. So from their point of view, uh, military intervention is needed as soon as possible. Unfortunately, it, has, it is motivated by interests. And the delay is made because of interests, because it is, it is difficult to reach consensus in the United Nations, uh, uh, NATO, and so on. So everything is because of interests. And you know, ordinary people I remember at that time uh, uh, telling maybe you the story. W why is it so complicated? If you see a, a huge man uh, beating a little child, you have to intervene. Because at that time, uh, official uh, army that was just organized had no weaponry. It was forbidden to have weaponry. And there was a huge army attacking on us, and also from the other side very soon. So, and we had no uh, a kilometer of free border in order to, to do something for, for ourselves. So uh, human rights should be at the first place. Uh, international law at the second maybe. Justice and then interests. Uh, as long as we have interests at the first place, there is no hope for this world. There is no hope for this, what we are doing here, for human rights. Because, you know, uh, military intervention has to be as soon as possible. I can speak, uh, we can speak later about the diplomatic intervention. That's another story, also big issue. For us, very important issue. We'll get back to that. Maybe I'd like to ask you about the interest question in Europe. Are we so sure it's not in Europe's interest to ensure a human rights-based government in Syria? It's only going to work if it's... Uh, driven by interests and by values. There is nothing wrong about interests. The question is, how do you define the interests? Uh, there is the Russian interpretation of interests. This is, that appears to be very cynical. And uh, uh, this is not the only way to define a country's uh, national interests. Um, the U.S. is another example. Um, I'm not saying that the U.S. is uh, the U.S. is not acting uh, selflessly. Selflessly, uh, if we have, on the other hand, we had the the, the mission, the intervention in Kosovo, uh, that in many European countries was uh, somehow sold as a as a pure selfless uh, mission that worked once um, because people in Europe are. 
somehow skeptical of interest-driven interventions. But uh, if you want, again, to, gain, to, to win public support for an intervention of this sort of in Europe, you have to provide an answer to the question, what is the European interest? And I can imagine, I can easily imagine providing a, a, a good uh, answer to this question. And unless we have an answer to this question, we will get no support for any interventions in Europe. And let me say, um, what you said is something I perfectly understand, but this is unfortunately not the way the world works, and we have to make our decisions in the real world. This, the famous sociologist, Max Weber, said once about uh, politics, he said there is an ethic of uh, um, attitude and an ethic of responsibility. And um, it's only ethics of responsibility that can rule the politics. Uh, this is the way it works. Hans? I can understand exactly where you're coming from in terms of the priorities that you place, and I understand why you do that, uh, and it has to do with what you witnessed. Uh, but looking at it from the point of view of a major power like the United States, uh, we have undertaken, by my count, about 10 interventions since the end of the Cold War. Uh, they have been very expensive. We have been on the successful side of most of those, but we have at least four now that I can count uh, where the outcome is uncertain. I mean, Somalia, still 20 years later, is uh, uh, uncertain. Iraq, after a trillion dollars' worth of efforts, is uncertain. Afghanistan is still uncertain. Libya is still uncertain. Uh, after a, a, an awful lot of American investment, and it's not just dollars, it's lives. Uh, I just visited Walter Reed Hospital a while ago, uh, and you walk around and you see the price that the United States pays for these interventions. So before you ask people uh, to pay that kind of a sacrifice uh, in dollars and in blood, uh, you have to be pretty sure. Uh, our history of interventions over the last several decades has been very interesting, uh, and we, we tend to learn from the last intervention. So, for example, Panama, successful. We decide that we can do Somalia. And we have Desert Storm, incidentally, both successful. We decide we can do Somalia. We do Somalia. We decide this is a bad idea, Black Hawk down. So we delay. We don't do Rwanda. We delay in Bosnia. We del and, and turns out we decide that's a mistake. Should have gone faster. We do Kosovo. Kosovo is a real success. We win Kosovo from the air without a casualty. Uh, so, therefore, we're inspired to do Afghanistan, which is also successful in the first phase. That misled us, I think, into uh, an intervention in Iraq uh, because we were, were coming off of these successes. We thought it was easy. Now we have lived with a, a decade of stability operations, uh, if you can call it that, in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, and the mindset now is, the mantra is, we don't want to do another Afghanistan. So it sets the bar very high for Syria, is my point. Lamia? Uh, uh, yeah, the other day I asked my colleague, Kurt Basina, uh, does he know any, any successful humanitarian? And we were argued about the situation in Bosnia. But he said something that can be comforting, maybe. Just imagine what, okay, it was late. It was late. Many of this was late. And it was because of interests that I uh, dream it should not be. Everybody says that I'm dreaming, but I, I like to dream. Uh, but he, he asked something with that, that uh, uh, made me uh, to come to senses. Uh, could you imagine what would have been that if there was no intervention at all, late, wrong, Whatever. But could you have scenario what would happen if there was no this late or wrong uh, intervention? So I still don't know, really. Probably we always want more than... than but I think it should be stopped. It should be stopped. Uh, and then, after guns are silent, then we can see, negotiate, do something. If 
can't be, if it can't be stopped by uh, uh, diplomatic negotiation, it should be stopped by force. And then we can see how further. Because this time, this delay is, is so tragic for so many people. It is not acceptable from, from the point of human rights. Could, Janos, could you imagine uh, any change of European policy? What it, would it, apart from the in domestic situation in Europe, could you imagine any development in Syria or the Middle East that would force European un, uh, Union members or NATO members to change our position and move in? I could imagine uh, the power of the images uh, that are delivered to millions of uh, homes in Europe. Uh, and that's, I, I, I do believe in the power of the, these images. These images uh, played an enormous role in the 1990s when people received them from the former Yugoslavia. The difference was that uh, former Yugoslavia was uh, somehow part of uh, the world people consider their own world. This is not the case uh, if it comes to Syria, unfortunately. Um, this is, these, these pictures are coming from another world. And here, we have to explain to the European public that even if they uh, consider that uh, something coming from another world, this is our world, not just because we have just one world, also because this is so close to Europe. Uh, this is our neighborhood. This is affecting us. Mm, uh, it's an illusion in Europe, and this is, that's the notion of Europe as a community to protect the members against the rest of the world. And this is a very popular um, uh, image of Europe. Um, people uh, in Europe love this, uh, this vision of, 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 of the community. And even the Polish people share this love today. That was different 15 or 20 years ago. Uh, today, uh, the majority of the Polish public loves this notion of Europe defending uh, itself against the rest of the world. So we, we don't want to be, to be uh, um, affected by the world. We, want to, we don't want to hear anything from the rest of the world. That cannot work. It's politically unwise and morally, well, not uh, really the best uh, attitude. But looking ahead, it's if uh, European or American position won't change. It's fairly easy to foresee a situation where more than half of the Syrian population will be in need of assistance. Killings will continue. Unrest will spread at least to the Lebanon, maybe to Iraq, possibly to northern uh, Jordan. It probably would affect Europe. You would see refugees coming out. You would see governments yes. always talk about risk of terror, etc. Isn't there a limit to the suffering we Which could accept? Which does not translate into uh, an obvious decision, but at least that should be the starting point for a discussion. We should start at the point to say, well, this is um, our concern. This is also something that is affecting our interests. And we have to define our interests, and then we have def to define our well, possible uh, uh, the actions. Uh, instead of that, you know, when I speak with uh, the foreign minister of one of the major European countries, he tells me, you know, this is so complicated, and we don't we don't know anything about the uh, the realities on the, the ground over there. We have no intelligence, and I, I say, you, you're kidding. Um, the European Union has no intelligence uh, on that. No, we don't have. Uh, uh, so we don't, we don't know who is who, we don't know uh, who will uh, make use of the weapons that we may send to the country. Uh, I believe that this is an excuse for not making a very, very difficult and risky decision, but an excuse. And Hans, what would be the game changer? What would make the US or NATO change its position? Well, I think we've already seen some, some of that happening. I think the chemical weapons issue, the, the, the chemical weapons issue uh, was one, uh, and I think there is this growing realization that some of our interests now are at stake. So let me tell you where I think this might go. 
Um, and I use two different models here, the, the Kosovo War and the Libya War. What happened in these two wars? Uh, basically, the ground power came from the indigenous military. In the case of Kosovo, it was the Kosovo Liberation Army. In the case of Libya, it was the militias around Benghazi and, and to the west. Uh, the air power came from the west, from NATO. Um, and where are we in the process so far? The Doha conference just over the last weekend or so agreed uh, to start moving, and the United States is going to be party to this, start moving arms into the opposition. The Saudis have been doing it. Uh, it's been coming from elsewhere in the Gulf. Unfortunately, many of those weapons are going into the wrong hands. And we can't control it, but there are some controls we can put on the weapons. So if we can provide weapons uh, for the opposition, uh, that will help shift the balance, I think, militarily. The tougher question has to do with air power and will we have some kind of a no-fly zone. Uh, the, the military is resisting that. Um, but I, there's thinking going on about it and there, there's movement in that direction. So if you have a no-fly zone using hopefully NATO air power uh, and uh, the ground forces coming from being stimulated by the weapons that are provided, you might see uh, an analogy to what happened in Kosovo and what happened in Libya. Is it this uh, theory or do you expect it to happen? It is, I think, the best we can hope for right now. Uh, I do not see uh, any desire uh, in the United States for boots on the ground what, the, what the, the troops you would have to deploy there would be numerous. You don't know with the intelligence that we have who you're fighting. So I don't see boots on the ground. So that's about the best I, I think we, we might be able to hope for. You know, we, we have to be realistic. Intervention will come sooner or later. And it will have the same form uh, it would have at the very beginning. Certainly. In meantime, innocent lives are lost. It is, it is obvious in each case it's such. I know, for instance, in Kosovo, intervention came not on time, but certainly sooner than it came in Bosnia. Probably lesson was learned. Uh, so uh, lots of lives were saved there. Otherwise, it could be catastrophe if there was no intervention. I don't discuss, it, was it a, a good form of intervention? I could, I could say something about that, but it's not our issue. So, intervention in Syria will come. And I'm simply advocating it should come as soon as possible. Because it will happen, but with the delay it has terrible consequences. Look, this is not just a parade of chairman of humanity in action. <laughs> you are supposed to speak as well. So the floor will be open. I think the first question is up here. Do we have a microphone? Uh, otherwise, we will offer one of one hours. Sorry, I didn't mean to usurp your microphone. Uh, Kurt Bessiner, member of the board of the Bosnian chapter of Humanity in Action. A couple comments and then uh, just in quick succession. I think our terminology is important. I, I blanch at hearing Afghanistan and Iraq talked about as interventions. Intervention connotes you're intervening in something that's ongoing and you're, you're either an interposing force or you're picking sides. Those were, those were wars of choice. Uh, in the way they, they went about. And so I would not put them on the same plane, though they're military operations and you could draw parallels in the way they, the way they were conducted. Uh, I don't think it's, it's the political decision-making process is parallel on, uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq to Bosnia, Kosovo, Somalia, now Syria. Uh, so that's just a quibble. I completely, I completely agree with you, Hans, about the you know fighting the last war and also the hangovers from whatever the last the last conflict are. Syria, Syria is now paying the price for 
in a way, for something that I thought was dead right and still do, was the intervention in Libya. And now there are a number of countries, not just the Russians, who say, okay, well, they went, they went beyond what we thought the mandate should be in terms of having a no-fly zone. No-fly zone just means regime change, no-go. Uh, so facing the facing the the problem of not being able to do this through the UN, and it, it won't happen that way for sure. If there is an intervention, it will not be UN sanctioned. I think that's fair to consider it a given. Um, I agree with Mr. Reiter about interests, uh, and exactly the point. Uh, how do you define your interests? I think the definition, the very narrow definition of what our interests were, say, circa a year ago, when it would have been a lot easier to intervene on the ground. Uh, I mean, intervene into this conflict with air power and that combination you're talking about. You didn't, you didn't have the new Russian missiles, uh, the highest-grade anti-aircraft missiles in there yet. Hezbollah was not a major fighting force in Syria then. So the, that, that's important. But I think, I think that the final point is we're looking at an option that, it, that draws a parallel between your two examples, Bosnia and Syria. The option that was pressed on Bosnia for a long time was what they called lift and strike. Lift the arms embargo, conduct airstrikes on the military positions. With Syria, Assad still has to play a shell game between his armored forces that have to travel on roads, uh, and he has a limited number of troops, even with Hezbollah's help, uh, that if they're immobilized, then you could, the, the ground forces of the opposition could start could, could get more traction. I think that is the way we need to go, and I agree with Lamia that the time is of the essence, and it's not going to get easier over time. Any comments? Hans? Uh, yeah, I, I certainly agree with you that Iraq was an optional war. I'm not sure I would, or I would agree that Afghanistan was. Um, but these lines are getting blurred because even in Iraq, the administration used something like responsibility to protect to justify their going in. And even in a case where it is truly a humanitarian intervention, uh, very often the end result is as you are dealing with that problem, you, you come to the conclusion that regime change is the answer. Uh, that was true in Somalia, it was true in Bosnia, it was true in Kosovo, subsequently with Milosevic. Uh, it was true in, in Iraq. So uh, that, those, these lines are, are more blurred than, than you might think. Do you think they are blurred in Syria as well? Is there any possible uh, solution, including the butcher of 100,000 people? I think that it, in this case it is both. Uh, I mean, to deal with the humanitarian crisis, we're going to have to have regime change, which underlines my point. Who's next? Uh, I'm next, hopefully. So my name is Maid. I come from Sarajevo, and uh, I was in the Copenhagen program. I have just a couple of let me get yeah, very quick questions. Uh, first of all, for Ambassador Ryder, uh, you mentioned interest and the EU and how it is hard to find consensus on difficult situations and difficult decisions. However, what about France and Mali just a couple of months ago? That was very quick, very brief, and on the spot, and they definitely had interest. Is that means that this is just a new political form of neocolonialism in terms of, yes, we were once we were there, so now we're going to do it again. Just a quick comment on that. For Mr. Benedict, I hope I pronounced your surname right. Uh, it is very interesting. Thank you for uh, intervening in Bosnia and Herzegovina, and thank you for your geological satellite that actually saw the uh, movements in the ground. That actually, that's how we found how the world found out about Srebrenica in the first place. My comment is humanitarian intervention in terms of the United States. Uh, now it seems that it's only sort of a defensive intervention because losing lives is okay, but if we have chemical weapons or maybe possibility of weapons of nuclear. Uh, nuclear weapons, then it gets all very personal with the United States. So maybe just a quick comment on that. And for uh, Ms. Stanovic uh, and Alice, for you, uh, maybe just a quick comment on peace versus justice in terms that does, would the intervention do something for these things and maybe what is more important. Sorry for the long talk. Thank you. So we are looking for a number of answers. Janusz first. Yes. Uh, first, let me say something that's uh, maybe a little bit provocative. Uh, and Hans actually already um, hinted that uh, um, the perception of the war in Iraq today is uh, uh, this is seen as a, as a sort of 
an expression of an absolutely cynical Machtpolitik or power politics. Uh, but I, I'd like to remind you that actually the justification for the war was very idealistic. It sounded very idealistic and it was uh, about uh, uh, creating democracy. Um, it was about uh, sharing the, 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 the same values with the Arab world, here represented by Iraq. And I remember uh, some discussions between people from here, from Poland and from Western Europe. People here, uh, maybe a little bit naively, tended to follow the US uh, line of thinking and saying, well, this is correct. Why shouldn't the Arab world, why shouldn't Iraq uh, have a share in the democratic processes? They are as well uh, prepared to uh, live in a democracy as anybody. Uh, um, while those from Western Europe said, come on, look at the cultural background. Uh, and uh, We were much more idealistic than there were. Today we are... Uh, um, not much more idealistic than uh, they were at that time. And now, France and Mali, yes, this is, I already mentioned France. Uh, there are two countries in Europe that have a different, they have the, a tradition of strategic culture. This is uh, the UK and France. And they have the self-confidence to act, also to use the military power if they consider that necessary. I believe very much that France uh, made the right decision. And uh, uh, maybe this is the way we, we will have to act in Europe, not waiting for 28 countries to make a, a, a decision, but uh, we will need a group of uh, ambitious countries that are willing to take the risk of acting. The problem is, however, that for that we need a certain critical mass. And it takes not only by the UK, is, a, is, an, is an important country, but it is isolating itself more and more in the European Union. So the UK is not really the best leader. France is a, a, an important leader with a strong self-confidence, but it is in a crisis. Um, so uh, it takes uh, more countries. It takes Germany. Maybe Poland also could play a role in that. Unfortunately, Germany is taking another direction. Uh, Germany is uh, representing the doctrine uh, responsibility to protect but with no military means, always stopping uh, short of the use of military power. So we have two competing uh, attitudes in Europe and, uh, well, unfortunately this uh, Non-military um, concept is, of course, much more attractive uh, to the uh, public. As long as there is no agreement between the major powers in Europe, I'm afraid we will have ad hoc reactions to, uh, to, to new situations, and we, will we can never be sure that the decision will be made like in Mali and not like in uh, Syria or in Libya where uh, 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 the EU was divided. Let me first comment on that because I agree with every word that you said. But let me try to put it into an American perspective. Uh, the United States has this policy that's about two years old uh, about a rebalance or a pivot to Asia. And uh, that has to do with economics. It has to do with China. Uh, it has to do with trying to get out of major wars in the Middle East. It's not a pivot from Europe. It's a pivot from wars in the Middle East, but there's kind of a, an unspoken corollary to that policy, and that is that as we begin to focus more attention on Asia and we shift our force structure militarily to Asia, we're going to expect more. We're going to expect more from our European allies in your own neighborhood. Uh, I think the model that people now are thinking about is Libya, which was derisively called leading from behind, but in fact it worked. It worked nicely. Uh, for the United States. We fought with our partners, but 90% of the ordnance dropped in Libya was European. Couldn't have done it without U.S. support. So that's the model. And I think Syria will be the test case. Uh, and the danger is that as the United States moves forward, and I see that happening to a more assertive policy, uh, that Europe will not be there. And that will lead to unfulfilled expectations, and that is of concern. Let me just break two seconds to your, your question. Uh, you asked about interest. It's, our interests are growing. It's not just about chemical weapons. It's about regional balance, 
It's about spillover. It's about stability uh, with, uh, on the part of a number of our friends and allies in the region. So I do see our interest being well beyond just chemical weapons. And when they grow, the humanitarian interests will amplify as well. Uh, regarding this dilemma, uh, peace or justice, I think that dilemma does not exist in that level. Uh, peace at any price. Uh, fight for justice starts after peace has been established. And of course, in that, I think diplomatic uh, international intervention then starts. And in that process, terrible mistakes can be made. We, we are, we in Bosnia are a victim of such a mistake. And it is mainly because in the uh, peace agreement, there is total reconstruction of the country. Someone has created totally uh, ungovernable state, which after, uh, after 18 years cannot stand on its, uh, its uh, feet. Uh, and I have to mention in Bosnia, there was no change of government, even not change of the parties that introduced us into the war, which was also a very, very big mistake. So we can discuss later how, how terrible mistakes can be done in this uh, peace process, how it should be led by human rights again, but peace at any price. Peace at any price? Who was next? I forgot. Chris? Peter Christgau, Denmark. Uh, I guess the most commonly used word uh, here has been interest. We're talking about national interest, we're talking about EU interests, NATO interests. And my question to you is, good old UN, who used to be a peace-enforcing and peacekeeping unit, can we write that off now? Interesting. I, I, to start with, I, if I might, uh, to use the UN as an instrument, uh, you will have to have a Security Council resolution. Uh, the Russians uh, are not prepared to do that. The Chinese would also veto. Uh, why? Uh, first of all, Syria Assad is a client. Uh, but secondly, as was mentioned, they see the Libya resolution that they agreed to. They saw that not as a resolution to overthrow Gaddafi, but as a resolution to stop catastrophe in, in, in Benghazi. And so their view right now is that the United States and the West went beyond the mandate uh, of uh, 2011 uh, in Libya, and they're just not going to give us another mandate like that. So what I could see, what I could see, if we are able to get rid of Assad and maybe through a Geneva process, come up with a different situation uh, that is more to the, the kind that we want to see emerge, then we, that has to be sustained. And when that happens, you're in a different ballgame. Then I can see uh, even the Russians agreeing to a Security Council resolution to sustain a new situation, and I can see a larger role for the UN. I, I think uh, UN should be the first uh, international body to react in any case. In any case, of course, we expected something from European Union, Europe, because we, were, we, we are part of Europe. But uh, United Nations should have uh, reactions on such cases. And it had, in our case, they had that awful resolution of abandoning us to defend ourselves. So we were not allowed to defend ourselves. So they, they did something, but they did something totally wrong. But should the world always wait for the UN, or could you accept at times that states would react without the green light from the UN? Exactly. Uh, that's the reason uh, United States, after waiting and waiting, uh, some of those big powers that are able to assist, they have their moral values or their interests, if you like. It is good that someone jumps in before uh, UN uh, gets consensus on that. Well, you need to get legitimacy from somewhere for your action. And Kosovo is an interesting model in that it was NATO, not the UN, uh, that provided the legitimacy for that. So there are other bodies that can give you that legitimacy. 
who was next? I didn't. Hi. Ah, sorry. Can you hear me? Okay. Liat from Israel. I think that when we talk about humanitarian intervention, the entire discourse tends to be focused on react reactive operations. Why aren't we talking prevention at all? I mean, there, there have been nominal attempts to create these genocide intervention networks by Samantha Powers, Bernard Kushner, and so forth. But to what extent are we really creating a network and policy that you know, leads to information sharing that can prevent these things instead of only reacting? Well, it's too late for Syria, uh, Syria that's already happening. Uh, and you're right, I mean, Samantha Power did create this interagency group in the United States, a prevention network. They meet once a month. Uh, but it's a sort of mid-level group, uh, and they uh, really are not empowered to make the kinds of decisions. They can share information, can bring other nations in and share information, but they, they don't have the power in that group to do the kinds of things that are really necessary. Who is next? Uh, up here. Hi, my name is Jessica. I'm from the United States, and I was in the Copenhagen program. So um, I just wanted to say that the United States is providing the rebels or militia with weaponry already, um, and that's something that you don't see uh, showcased in the American media. You have to go to um, foreign media outlets to see that it, it's happening already. So um, since the militias themselves are committing atrocities against their own people, just as Assad's regime is, uh, my question is that if there is humanitarian intervention, such as boots on the ground by the U.S. and or Europe, who exactly are we supporting from the militias or Assad's regime, probably not Assad's regime, um, aside from the Syrian people? I think no one talked about boots on the ground, but still, if we provide weapons, do we know to whom we should provide? Um, part of the reason that we have delayed this long on weapons transfers, and there, there are some clandestine operations, but uh, it's just very recently that the United States has shifted positions to say, okay, now we support this. And, and most of it has not been coming from the United States. It's been coming with Saudi money through other sources, and the United States sometimes facilitates that. But the, uh, it's very difficult, which is part of the reason we've been slow, uh, to determine where that goes. Now, there are some things you can do. Uh, I, for example, uh, if you're talking about shoulder-fired anti-tank weapons, shoulder-fired anti-aircraft weapons, you can provide limited numbers of, of the actual uh, rockets. Uh, and so they get the launchers and they have to keep coming back to you for the ammunition. So there are ways like that that you can try to control this. Uh, but what we've seen so far is that it's gone into the wrong hands. I'll, uh, front, uh, front. They're, they're the ones who are gaining strength here. I think we can still take one more question. Who is that? Yeah. Please. Um, my name is Marina. I'm from Ukraine. Thank you for um, an interesting presentation. And I would like to refer to the issues which precede uh, humanitarian intervention. You know that now the shift in international conflicts went from the conflicts between states to um, to the conflicts which uh, take place within one state. So do you consider uh, common prevention mechanisms which are worked um, out by the United Nations applicable uh, to the conflicts which uh, don't exceed the borders of one state? Thank you. Well, it is true that uh, since Desert Storm, I think almost every conflict that the United States, every intervention that we've made is in, in an internal uh, conflict. Um, and uh, most laws of war are about interstate warfare. Uh, so that does provide us with a, a different set of rules of the road, and it makes the intervention more difficult. So that's why you have to use mechanisms like a Security Council resolution or a NATO resolution to try to get the authority to do what, uh, what you need to do. Yeah, I, I agree too. And uh, so we, we have also to, to understand the reality that uh, I think the majority of uh, 
countries of states still stick to the traditional uh, concept of national sovereignty. And uh, the Western world uh, is, uh, well, a minority in, 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 in the international community. Um, it's, uh, I don't know what it's, how likely it is, it seems to be rather unlikely that China or Russia and even countries like Brazil will share our concept of, uh, uh, well, interventions or of state sovereignty. Um, and this is, and since these countries uh, have more and more power in the world, the, the problem will be even more dramatic. And, uh, and this is why, for me, the UN as a source of legitimacy, it's necessary, but um, of course it can be questioned if we, if we have situations where this is abused for very egoistic national interests. Okay, but this is the reality again. For me, this is even more important because it's, um, it's the, maybe the only place to find uh, well, to make deals, to find compromises, to, and to, get, to, to win more support and somehow to get uh, a consensus. And then, only then, we can expect countries to take the risk. Because uh, if uh, the leadership in the Western countries has to also accept the risk of being, at the end of the day, uh, looking naive, because we have done something that has not worked and that is then used against us. Well, every failed uh, mission of this, of this kind makes it even more unlikely that there will be a positive decision if such a decision must be made. We can do one more question and it will be... Okay, there are two. We'll collect the answers afterwards. First you, then you. I'm Joshua from the United States, and I was in the Berlin program. And my question is about the responsibility to protect, and specifically um, when interventions are not taking place, but the role of refugees and asylum um, in a lot of Western countries, the United States and Europe, um, are being allowed in those spaces. What role um, and responsibility do countries have to take refugees and asylum seekers um, when they're not intervening in a country such as Syria now? Interesting. And the second one? Hi, my name is Morten. I'm from Denmark. Um, so far, the discussion has been whether another state should act um, in regard of the concept of human security or the state security. My question would be, um, what are your thoughts on people acting on their own responsibility? You see that in Syria right now, that people are traveling to Syria to fight for what they believe. So what would you tell me if I was going to pack my stuff and uh, join the forces in Syria? Ah, the last one. What would you tell me if I was going to pack my stuff to join the war in Syria? That, that happened in Bosnia. Many came to, to uh, fight on the side that they think is right. But I generally think, when, when speaking about the military intervention, intervention that was done in Bosnia is simply, it's not on side of any side. It is simply to maybe I'm not military expert and I am again naive, it's to silence the weapons. Whoever is shooting should be silent, should be bombed or whatever. It is also with the humanitarian aid, you feed people on both sides. You feed them, you like all of them to survive. It is also whoever is troublemaker should be put in silence. To, to, to set it carefully. So it is really, your question is really something that is, that is not, that, is, that nobody knows how to resolve. That now uh, thousands of people from various countries are going to Syria to fight on various sides. Uh, well, first on asylum, um, I think it would be much easier to uh, to come to an agreement in the European Union on the 
civilian side of the responsibility. And people would be delighted to have a sort of division of labor with the U.S. So the U.S. Um, in charge of the military part in Europe, uh, taking responsibility for the civilian part. But, of course, this is not uh, exactly a fair um, uh, burden sharing. It's not going to be accepted by the U.S. So uh, we, have, we need a burden sharing, but uh, uh, we cannot uh, leave the more difficult parts uh, to the U.S. Um, and now... Uh, if you said that you were going to join the war, uh, I would say save your life because you can make better use of it. Um, and uh, um, yeah, this is what I would say. Save your life, make a better use of it. Maybe help, try to help Syria, but uh, not in the way that I believe is the best way. Uh, you can really practice, unless I don't know uh, enough about you. And Hans? So there's a fundamental question here, which is, why are people fighting there? In my view, it is not really about democracy. It, I mean, Arab Spring and the notion of democracy opened up Pandora's box. But people are fighting now for sectarian reasons. Uh, you see uh, Shia moving in. You see the uh, fighters coming from Iran over uh, a Shia-led Iraq. You see Hezbollah coming in. Uh, why? Because they're there to protect their Alawite Shia brothers. Uh, and you see, as there are hints of arms coming in, as there's some sense that the fighting might turn based on that, you're seeing Sunnis coming in from the refugee camps, uh, coming back into Syria to fight because they see a prospect now. But they are fighting fundamentally for their sect, not for democracy. Um, uh, and that sort of leads to the question that was asked about refugees. And uh, what's happening here is that the refugees are not coming to the United States. They're not seeking asylum in the United States. They are going to Jordan. They're going to T Turkey. They're going to Lebanon. They're destabilizing those societies. Uh, I don't see much interest in the United States to take large numbers of Syrians. Uh, I think the hope is that you can settle it and these refugees will, will go back into the country. So, friends, we've been talking about the inaction or how to move from inaction of humanity to humanity in action. Help me thank Lamia, Hans, and Janusz.